0: Well, good evening. Uh, I'm Wendy Luget, the University Librarian, and it's wonderful to see all of you here this evening for a very special and much anticipated evening. This is our third Paul and Joanne Nagel uh, lecture featuring Joseph Ellis. And before we begin the program, I want to thank the Friends of the University Libraries for sponsoring the event. These are our trusted ambassadors helping us to celebrate what the libraries do for learning and how critical we are to the intellectual life of the university. And the generous support of our friends helps us bring these remarkable programs, an array of writers and poets and opinion leaders to the stage. And if you aren't a member of the friends group, now is the time to join. Inside your program, there's a special little announcement. Uh, We have a special match being offered for first-time friends membership. So uh, this has never been a better time to become a friend. I also want to thank our co-sponsors for the evening, the Minnesota Historical Society and the College of Liberal Arts Department of History. Now, the Paul and Joanne Nagel Lecture Series was created to honor Dr. Paul Nagel, who was an active member of the Friends, and his wife Joanne. Paul was a former university professor and administrator, director of the Virginia Historical Society, and senior trustee of the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. He was also a best selling author of several books, including three on the family of John and Abigail Adams which gives him something in common, actually, with our speaker this evening, Joseph Ellis. In 2010, Paul was honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Adams Institute, joining David McCullough and Senator Edward Kennedy, the only three people to ever have received this award. Now, Joanne was an accomplished genealogist and a librarian. And she was Paul's collaborator on all of his projects. And together, they made a real impact. And this series honors those many contributions. And now to tonight's program. William Faulkner once wrote, the past isn't dead. It isn't even the past. In those simple two sentences, we are reminded that history is part of us and we are living it or living with it, within it, every day. In an election year, which seems to be well more than a year, we often hear politicians and pundits opine about the Constitution and what our forefathers might have meant when they drafted it. Tonight, we have an expert on that subject, a scholar and an author of scores of books about the major figures of the Revolutionary War, and in his own words of how a small group of prominent leaders in disregard of popular opinion carried the American story to a very new direction. Joseph Ellis is one of the nation's leading scholars of American history, the author of nine books. He was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Founding Brothers, The Revolutionary Generation, And he won the National Book Award for American Sphinx, a biography of Thomas Jefferson. His in-depth chronicle of the life of our first president, His Excellency George Washington, was a New York Times bestseller. And his newest book, which provides the basis for tonight's talk, The Quartet, Orchestrating the Second American Revolution, Was released in spring 2015 to stellar reviews and those of you who have read it can attest that those were well deserved. His essays and books, uh, his book reviews appear regularly in national publications such as the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, New Republic, The New Yorker, and his commentaries have been featured on CBS, C-SPAN, CNN, PBS, and he's appeared in several documentaries on early America, including John and Abigail Adams on PBS's The American Experience and a History Channel documentary on George Washington. Professor Ellis has taught in the Leadership Studies program at Williams College, at the Honors College at the University of Massachusetts, and Mount Holyoke College, and the United States Military Academy at West Point. As this large and enthusiastic audience demonstrates, history is not dead. It's not even sleeping. So please join me in welcoming Joseph Ellis.
1: Uh, Thank you for that. Gracious introduction, Um, I've been to Minnesota several times in the last five or six years. The time I remember best is I was asked to come to the Guthrie Theater to talk for three or four days with the actors who were about to put on to play 1776, and I knew that was going to be fun, and I arrived, the day I arrived, and it was all these TV cameras out there, And I thought, heavens to Betsy, I didn't know I was so important. (laughs) It was the day the bridge fell down. (laughs) Uh, Right there, as a matter of fact. In my travels, I've been to lots of places. I would say Minneapolis-St. Paul is perhaps the most civic, big city I've ever been in. And I think you should know that from an outsider, a southerner who lives in New England. I want to begin, oh by the way, is there anybody from Mount Holyoke here? All right, meet me afterwards. Um, We'll see how you're doing. I want to begin with a statement that forces you to have an answer to a question. The statement is this, the first clause in the first sentence of the most famous speech in American history is historically incorrect. Uh, what's the most famous speech in American history? That's right. What's a plausible choice, option, alternative? Younger generation will pick it more, fa- more than you will. I have a dream speech. Yeah. In a poll, they'll pick that. Some of them will pick Kennedy's for inaugural. It's first and only inaugural. Um, but. You're right. In other words, you're in the consensus. It's the Gettysburg Address. Let us say the first clause, well, we'll say the whole sentence together, okay? See if we can do that. I'll start and then. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Excellent job. Some of you had to memorize that like I did in high school. Yeah. They're different phrases. Fathers, not forefathers. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. What's four score and seven from 1863? It's given away by the second half of the sentence, right? It's 1776, it's gotta be. That's the day we declare independence, that these men are created equal, right? By the way, what makes the Gettysburg Address so historically significant, it's the first occasion in which Lincoln says the war is about ending slavery. He had never said that before. Up till then it was about saving the Union. This is the reason it's so historically significant as well as lyrically impressive. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. No, they didn't. They brought forth a confederation of sovereign states provisionally united to come together to fight the British and win the war and then go their separate ways, which they then proceeded to do. The resolution for independence, July 2nd, 1776, put forward by Richard Henry Lee, read, that these colonies are and have every right to be independent states. And if you think back, when they've been hurling these arguments for 10 years against George III and his ministers from 1765 to uh, 1775, what are they saying? Parliament cannot tax us or legislate for us later at all Because that power belongs where? The colonial legislatures. Not in any national, there is no national government, of course, then. So that as of 1776, the commitment is to a temporary alliance, which is reflected in the form of government, which isn't really a government, called the Articles of Confederation that they pass. It takes two years to ratify, but under the articles, sovereignty resides in the individual states. And that's very clear. It becomes very clear during the war, especially if you're George Washington. Washington wants to raise an army capable of defeating the British with great resolve quickly. He calculates that given the size of the American male population, it's possible to raise an army of almost 200,000. There's that many guys between 18 and, and 50. I'm only going to ask for less than half that. 88,000 is what I want. He asked for this in the summer of 1776, just before the Battle of Long Island. He keeps asking. He never gets more than 15,000. In fact, that's the high point. Um, every state takes care of itself first. Every state raises militia, pays more money to militia. I mean, why the hell would you go with the Continental Army for half the pay, and you've got to go away from home and serve for at least a year? And he wants it to be a duration. Anyway, the point is the way in which the Continental Army is treated is another reflection of the fact that sovereignty resides in the states rather than any kind of national government. The Continental Congress functions as a provisional national government for a while. But by 1777, even as of the Declaration in 76, all the forces are centrifugal rather than centripetal. We used to be held together by one thing. We were members of the British Empire. Now we're going to be held together by another thing, secession from the British Empire. 20% 20% of the population doesn't agree with that, they're loyalists. Another 40% doesn't care. And they'll go with whoever's winning. But now that we win the war, once won, hasta la vista, baby. And further proof that things are heading in that direction, we have a debt of $40 million, it's growing, you know, that. That magic, it's already, Virginian planners thought this was like magic. Compound interest is like unbelievable. (laughs) Um, It's gonna be 77 million by 1787. That's the debt. So people say, what kind of republic have you created? A banana republic. (laughs) We can't pay our debts. We have no foreign policy. Massachusetts has its own foreign policy. Adams, Abigail writes back saying to John Jay, my husband is just mortified because the British are laughing at him. He represents a government that doesn't exist um, and he can't negotiate. So that's where we're at. That's the direction American history is headed. It's headed towards the Europeanization of North America it's headed towards an American version of the EU. That's where it's going. And there is nobody out there among the people at large who finds any trouble with this. People are pretty content with that. Maybe not because they are ideologically committed to the principle of state sovereignty or local sovereignty, although they are, The average American, ordinary American, is born, lived out his or her life, and dies within a 28-mile radius. He doesn't care. She doesn't care what's going on somewhere else. Later on in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, Patrick Henry will put this point of view quite clearly. One of the reasons he will oppose ratification of the Constitution quite, quite eloquently, as a matter of fact. So suppose we join this union and everybody outside of Virginia, the representatives from the other states, vote for a tax and our representatives vote against it. We're going to be taxed without our consent. It's got some Tea Party stuff here. Okay, um, That's actually the origins, the anti-federalists are the origins of the Tea Party. Denial of the legitimacy of the federal government. OK. That's the direction in which American history is heading. And we all know it changes direction. Um, and how does that happen? Well, in this, this little book here, it says what it says. Uh, I told you I wouldn't. Oh, I, I forgot to tell you. I'm not going to read to you. I'm going to talk to you, right? you. That you would prefer that, I presume? Yes. Okay. Four men made the transition from confederation to nation happen. They are George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay and James Madison. If they are the stars of the story, the supporting cast consists of Robert Morris, Governor Morris, no relation and Thomas Jefferson. My contention is that the political this political quartet diagnosed the systematic dysfunctions under the articles manipulated the political process to force a calling of the Constitutional Convention, collaborated to set the agenda in Philadelphia, attempted somewhat successfully to orchestrate the debates in the state ratifying conventions, and then drafted the Bill of Rights as an insurance policy to ensure state compliance with a constitutional settlement. If I'm right, This was arguably arguably the most creative and consequential act of political leadership in American history. In other words, it's a coup d'etat, but it's a good coup. Now, it's got some bad features. I can see you saying, wait a minute, maybe we would have been better off without it. No, we wouldn't. Um, We'll talk about that and slavery. But how does this direction change? One thing that happens that begins to change the political chemistry is best captured in a scene when John Jay is standing over a table with a map on it in Versailles in August of 1782. The University of Minnesota has got a lot of maps. Um, This map, the original, is at the uh, Clement Library in University of Michigan. It's a map of North America. The early maps of North America are really funny. Like the Pacific is about 50 miles west of the Alleghenies. (laughs) It's like the old New Yorker map, you know. And um, um, there is a Spanish minister in the room named Count Aranda with Jay. Jay is now solely responsible for negotiating for the American position on the end of the war. I'll tell you why in a sec. And Aranda, because Spain has a treaty with France and the United States is required by instruction, back in Philadelphia, do not do anything without the support of France. France saved our bacon. France helped us win the war. We cannot do anything without them. Well, France has got a treaty with Spain, therefore we have to also pay attention to what Spain thinks. The map is on the table. Aranda puts his finger on a spot somewhere in the Great Lakes and draws a line down through central Ohio around where it's now Toledo, further south, ending up in the Florida Panhandle around Tallahassee. He says, everything east of that line is yours, everything west of that line is ours, Spain's. Jay doesn't need to draw a line, he just takes his finger puts it on the Mississippi, that is our western border and it is non-negotiable. There are two principles that are non-negotiable, recognizing American independence and the Mississippi as the western border. It's the most successful diplomatic negotiation in American diplomatic history. It comes at the very start. We've never done better. (laughs) We get everything because the British can't afford to continue the war. The great principle is independence. The great prize is the Trans-Allegheny West. And that changes the chemistry of the political situation. Because how does a confederation manage expansion into that area? It can't do it on a state-by-state basis, or at least now we're going to benefit collectively because we're going to raise money. If each of the states pays a dollar, if if it's a dollar an acre per sale for sale of land, you can retire this debt pretty easily. By the way, one of the reasons that if you think about it, we never need, when is the first income tax, 1913? We don't need an income tax. Why? We're selling the land. It's when the land runs out that things get troublesome. Um, And that occurs in 1890. All right. So that, by the way, I sort of discovered Jay here. I mean, like, Jay's been there all this time, of course. And, um, uh, but I never thought of Jay as a founder at the same time, level of significance as Washington, Adams, Hamilton, Madison, um, who's the other that's good? Franklin, Franklin, yeah. That's the top six. I now think Jay deserves serious consideration, not just for what I described, but he becomes the equivalent of Secretary of State during the government under the Articles. Um, He negotiates the Jay Treaty, which is probably the single most important diplomatic negotiation in the early Republic, uh, he becomes the first Chief Justice, which is the reason he's got a criminal justice college named after him in New York, but when, when Washington is elected president and he's thinking about his cabinet, he goes to Jay and he says, what do you want? I'll give you any position you want. He is the number one choice of Washington for any position. That was his stature back there, and the fact that it hasn't, it hasn't, Seen that way to us is largely a function of the fact that his papers have not been published in the way that the other founders were. They were were hoarded at Columbia, for reasons I will not attempt to explain. Um, They're starting to come out now. You bet on the market, bet on Jay. Joe Ellis says, if you bet on Jay, you're going to earn a lot of money Uh, here. His reputation is going to go up. They call the, Con- the, Con- the Confederation Congress recognizes they've got a problem because states are essentially establishing tariffs against each other. New York is charging Rhode Island and Connecticut import duties to allow their ships to dock there. Therefore, some form of regulation of interstate commerce, what we now call interstate commerce, seems a good idea. And so they allow for this meeting at Annapolis to occur. Madison goes to this thing and so does Hamilton. But only five states show up. What did Woody Allen say? You know, leadership. 90% of leadership is showing up. and. Um, uh, It's difficult to get people to show up uh, as members of the Confederation Congress, or in this case, to the Annapolis Convention. And so after two days, they simply adjourn. But Hamilton, and this, you know, Hamilton's now back in vogue, obviously, for his Broadway reasons. But this is an example of Hamilton's cavalry charge audacity leadership at its most audacious. We've just had this Annapolis Convention fail completely. And at the end of it, Hamilton writes to the Congress and says, we're adjourning, but we have agreed that we now need to have a general convention to take on all the problems of the current Articles of Confederation. And we suggest the second Tuesday in May, where we can have this new convention meet. Like. It would be like some journeyman boxer has been knocked out by another journeyman and has just challenged the heavyweight champion of the world. How in heaven's name can this possibly succeed? Here comes another ingredient. His name is George Washington. Jay starts to write Washington. You need to know that we're headed towards anarchy and you're going to have to come out of retirement. Madison starts to do the same thing. Hamilton eventually comes in on the same, and Hamilton had served as his aide-de-camp for four years. There is a concerted campaign to recruit Washington. Why? Seems obvious. No attempt to have a convention is likely to succeed, But if there is any possibility, Washington's inclusion in the delegation transforms the improbable into the possible. He is the indispensable man. The trouble is he really doesn't want to do it. And he really doesn't want to do it. He had retired from public life delivering the sword At Annapolis, as a matter of fact, uh, at the end of the war in a famous version of the Cincinnatus story, Cincinnatus uh, swords into plowshares. And the thing about Cincinnatus is once he leaves, he can never come back. And Washington says, I have pledged myself to be in retirement, and I cannot violate that pledge. If you read Washington's correspondence during this time, there's another variable at work here. It's elegiac. The phrase that keeps reappearing is gliding down the stream of life. Washington feels he's much closer to the end than the beginning. Though he's of sound constitution, he knows that males in the Washington line over the last four generations have never made it out of their 50s. He's, and he's in that position. He's in his late 50s. Um, so he wants, to, he wants to die at Mount Vernon underneath his vine and fig tree. And he's not playing games here. He's not being coy. Um, Madison is the person who really starts to write him in a way that becomes persuasive and an event happens that makes the situation more, more of an emergency. This right where I live in Western Massachusetts, there's this insurrection called Shays' Rebellion. You ever heard of Shays' Rebellion? Yeah. It's really not a big deal. It's like 2,000 guys are protesting the taxes and their mortgage foreclosures. Um, it's hyped and the press—it's you know—they're going to march on Boston and take the city. You know they aren't going to do. It. They try to take the armory at Springfield, and they—they're turned away, and are dispersed. So that there's a kind of, you know, it's like when we thought we were going to be invaded by Grenadier. Remember that? And, um, <laughs> um, um, yeah. Reagan really saved us from the grenade. And, um. <laughs> um, um but that does create a certain sense of fear. Madison actually appears to believe that, that there's a plot in which British agents in Canada are trying, are <laughs> linking up with Western mass farmers, and they're linking up with Western New Hampshire and soon-to-be Vermont. Vermont's not yet a state, and they're all going to secede. Western New England's going to secede from the Union and join Canada. Now, none of that's really going to happen. But that's part of the fear. And it makes credible the notion that we're facing something called anarchy. What we're really facing, ladies and gentlemen, isn't going to be anarchy. It's going to be a split of the confederation probably into three confederacies. New England, Middle Atlantic, and South. That's probably what's going to happen. Then God knows what happens after that. Washington becomes more interested and more pliable once he receives a certain piece of information from Madison. Madison is a great nose counter. Within the Virginia aristocracy, that's considered demeaning, but that's what he could do really well. And what Madison finds out is that the people opposed to revisions in the the Constitution are boycotting the convention. The people who are coming are going to be comprised of two, two groups, moderates who want to revise the Articles of Confederation and radicals who want to do away with them altogether and replace them. Madison and Washington are radicals. Washington says, I'll only do this if you promise me if we go for broke. I'm not going for middle position. I'm going for total change. Nobody is as much of a nationalist as Washington because Washington watched what happened to the Continental Army and watched them be sent off as beggars without their, without pensions. Okay. By late spring, Madison has persuaded Washington to come as part of the Virginia delegation. And he then spends most of April, March and April, writing what it's a series of of notes called Vices of the Present System, but they add up to what becomes the Virginia Plan. The Virginia Plan is Madison's argument for replacing the current articles with a fundamental government, fundamentally new government that shifts sovereignty from the state to the federal level. They meet in, in the, the there's storms throughout New England in early May of 1787. Most of New England delegations can't make it. There's a delay of about 10 or 12 days. And so there's a caucus among the Virginia delegation and they caucus on this and agree and that sets the agenda for the convention. That's a big advantage that they're going to have. Um, they've got two advantages. They've got Washington and they got, they've set the agenda. But they got a problem, the rules of the convention follow the rules under the articles, one state, one vote. The small states can stop anything, therefore the belief that you're going to get a legislature that's based on population, as a fundamental principle, which Madison believes is necessary, is not going to work. It's not going to be possible to do that. They're going to be able to block it. And so some form of compromise is built in to the structure of the convention. It's, you know, we spend a lot of time studying, well, what did Madison say and what did Governor Morris say, what did so-and-so say, what did George Mason say? What they said is worth us listening to, but it doesn't make much difference. The delegates already knew what they were going to vote for. An argument didn't really make that much of a difference to many of them. There are two ghosts at the banquet. One is monarchy, and they can't stop talking about it. George III haunts everything. They've overlearned the lessons of 76. Any form of executive power is, by their view, monarchical. The other ghost, they can't mention it's so bad, and that's slavery. Notice the word slavery never appears in the Constitution, nor does African or Negro. The the phrase is that species of property, that species of property. That's the way they refer to it. Historians who look back on the convention and try to finesse the issue of slavery are making a huge mistake. Listen, it's a central issue. It's embedded in the economy of the South. No political settlement is possible without dealing with the slavery issue. And South Carolina does in 1787 what they're going, they threaten to do what they actually threaten to do and do in 1861. If you insist on any article in the in the document that either purports to end slavery or put it even on the road to ultimate extinction, we're out of here. Okay? Georgia's out of there too. Virginia's probably out of there, though they, they always like to sound more more moral than they really are. Virginia <laughs> yeah, I'm a Virginian uh, and Virginia sounds moral because Virginia is in favor of ending the slave trade. The reason they're in favor of ending the slave trade is because their plantations are overstocked. If you end the slave trade, it increases the value of the slaves they're going to sell to South Carolina. There's nothing moral about it. If you then start talking about ending slavery, then the Virginians say, oh, no, that's not what we're talking about. And in fact, the crop for Virginia planters by the late 18th century becomes moves from tobacco to slaves. There's a million slaves sold between um, 1790 and 1860 uh, in the diaspora, internal diaspora. It's what's called selling them down the river. Um, okay. Well, the point that's difficult, it's really hard to make this point with students, but... If they had faced it and insisted in an abolitionist way on a blank opposing slavery, it would have never passed. That is, the Constitution would have never passed. They made a political compromise, a political compromise of a moral issue. Why did they do that? Most of them thought slavery was going to die a natural death. They thought slave labor could not compete successfully with free labor. They didn't know about the cotton gin. They didn't know about the cotton kingdom. They thought if they didn't do anything, it would simply die. Now, it's pretty clear by no later than 1820, that's not true. and it's interesting when you read the Jefferson papers. As Secretary of State in 1792, all patents go to the Secretary of State, weirdly. So you're reading this correspondence to the Secretary of State, and here comes this patent from Eli Whitney. And he writes to this guy, Eli Whitney, at Yale. He says, does this thing work? He's talking about the cotton show. Um Well, there is a figure in the convention that doesn't, hasn't received his due. Most people would say that Madison is the father of the American Constitution. And there's good reason for that. He did set the agenda, as I told you, with the Virginia Plan. And also, he's the guy, see, it's like he's the historian. The historian gets to to, to say who's, you know, he's the one who keeps the official record of the convention. By the way, he keeps changing it all the time later. Over the next thirty years, he's changing stuff. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's you know like after the um, Missouri crisis, he changes it. After the um, of eighteen, the tariff crisis in eighteen twenty, he's shifting. He's like trying to make it in accord with contemporary events later on. Um, Governor Morris is not a guy many of you have heard about. But he is really an interesting character. And he, he's a bit of a womanizer. That shouldn't be held too much against him in a Trump era. But, um, <laughs> um, but um, he's a peg-legged guy. He's got one leg. And there's, if you go to the Virginia Statehouse, there's a famous statue of Washington. It's done by Houdon, the greatest uh, sculptor of of the era. And Houdon came over to Mount Vernon to do a life mask of Washington in the 1780s. But of course, he couldn't do the whole torso. And so it so happened that Governor Morris was in Paris later on as America's minister to France. The torso of Washington's statue is really Governor Morris. (laughs) And he was the same size as Washington, he was six three and a quarter. But they take his peg leg away, of course. <laughs> but listen to this, nobody speaks more in the convention than Governor Morris. He, he, he's the one person who speaks more frequently than Madison, rises to speak. He's also this piece, person that most vociferously opposes slavery. He said slavery is a form of aristocracy and medieval. In August of 87, they form a committee called the Committee on Style, and they appoint Morris the head of the Committee on Style. Uh, Madison's on this thing, so is Hamilton, a Committee on Style. This sounds like, you know, not very important. It means you've got to write the document. Got all these notes about what was in. Okay, put it together for us now. If somebody, this is a question nobody will ever get right on Jeopardy. Who wrote the Constitution of the United States? Governor Morris wrote the whole thing, okay? It consolidates all kinds of paragraphs, very, it reads the way it does because of him. What are the first words of the Constitution? We, the people of the United States. Where in heaven's name does that come from? Because that is in effect a statement that resolves the sovereignty question in a way they have not been able to do. What was in the drafts he was working with? The draft said this. We, the people of Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, down the coast. Do hereby agree. Well, who says, who changes it? Who, where, where's the debate? There's no debate. He just does it. <laughs> By himself. And nobody questions it. And so the document has a clear commitment to the doctrine of popular sovereignty into the federal government as the representative of that. Government shifts from them to us. That's a big deal. Okay? And okay, you could say it's only the words here, and it is only the words, but they're really important words. And by the way, I think they're rather important for us right now, too. Uh, we rise or fall as a single people, it seems to me. Okay ratification. This should be the great debate in American history. After all, they've passed this document. Nobody knew what they were doing. They're doing this, you know, they could never have another convention now. All that we believe in, in terms of transparency and diversity, totally violated. 55 white guys get together in total secret and dream up some idea. That's what it was. But in this larger context, 13 states. Vermont's coming in for this, but Rhode Island's still going to boycott. Rhode Island boycotts everything, okay? (laughs) Like I always thought, when my son went to Brown and I was trying to get to go to Brown, if you try to get from Massachusetts to Providence, Rhode Island, it's been changed now because of the highways. But back then, it was really hard to get there. They don't want you to go down there. Okay? It's where you send witches and Quakers and wild kinds of cra- crazy people, okay? And Rhode Island behaves that way throughout this process. It doesn't, part- it doesn't send any delegates to the convention and it refuses to participate. And it had single-handedly um, voted against the impost. You know, everybody else voted for it? No. That stopped it. So Rhode Island eccentric. Um, there should be a big debate between October of 1787 and July of 1788, every state has a convention that meets to debate this. And it's in the newspapers. And man, you know, like, this is the great debate in American history. And in some sense, it is. But if you read as I was required to do the documentary history of each state's ratifying convention, boring. (laughs) And the reason it's boring is because they cannot have a national conversation. Every state is talking about its own self-interest and its own, then within the state it breaks down further. The only document in the ratification process that takes is that me? Oh, The only document that takes a national perspective is the Federalist papers. And that's why they're important. Um, Hamilton writes 51 of them. Madison writes 29, and Jay writes five. And they're the only, the only documents that address the problem facing the United States from a national perspective. All the others take their own local and state perspective exclusively. Um, um, well, how, is this, how does this get how does this get approved? Well, first of all, it's been almost it's been a bit of a coup d'état to make this happen, right? Because remember, they the, the convention was charged with revising the articles. They changed their mandate. We're not revising. We're replacing them. article said, in order to have any kind of new constitution approved, it must be unanimous in all the states. Well, of course, that's impossible given Rhode Island, you know. (laughs) So what the the people in the convention said, the delegates say, this will be ratified if nine states approve it. Where the hell did they get that? (laughs) They just made it up. So the whole strategy is get to nine, because we know there are some states that are never going to ratify, Rhode Island being one, New York being another. George Clinton in New York is never going to let this thing get through. And we got some doubts about North Carolina, and Virginia is going to be really close. Um, so. If we can get to nine, then the rest of the states have to come in or not be part of the union, right? Now, so that's Madison's strategy. And he's lucky because some of the the most difficult states, including Virginia and New York, come late in the sequence. So the sequence is important, as much as this telephone conversation. Um, um, another thing that they do, nine votes, how did it, is most of the states in the ratifying convention would like to do something like this. We like this, but there are some things we would like to add or some things we would like to change. Okay, Mostly reducing federal st- jurisdiction over us. So, we like this, but here are some changes. They rule from the start, they being the delegates to, at the Constitutional Convention, you can't do that. It's up or down. You can't go middle. Either you want in or you don't. And that makes it really tough. I mean, it, it makes it a lot easier to get it ratified. And what happens as a result of this is that seven states say, okay, we're going to go along. Now, I don't see why some states didn't say, what do you mean? How do you tell us what we can do? We can do whatever we want to do. We're going to vote, we're going to vote for these with amendments. Now, of course, that's going to create chaos because so you got all these states with different amendments and then how do you reconcile which of them are going to be a part of the document or not? Anyway. Um, at the at the end of the game what Madison says is okay you that want to have amendments first vote on it and then if you have recommended amendments put them in. They're just recommended but we'll take them into consideration later okay that's what the Bill of Rights becomes, okay? That's the reason we get a Bill of Rights. Now, like I appeared in the uh, National Archives when they, they had this new exhibit on the Bill of Rights. That, uh, this guy bought, this guy, uh, this patriotic philanthropist bought the, some basic, bought the Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights. And the, the Bill of Rights is supposed to be our Magna Carta, right? Like, if you look at the origins of the Magna Carta, Magna Carta is really not Magna Carta. Um, And the Bill of Rights isn't what you think it is. It's not some moment when we cite the eternal truths and we put them down on paper. That's not what they are. In fact, Madison didn't think it needed a Bill of Rights. And he spent the whole ratification process telling everybody pretty much that. So why didn't they have a Bill of Rights to begin with? They should have had one. They should have done it in Philadelphia that summer. Why didn't they do it? You can invent all kinds of reasons, but the real reason is they were tired and they wanted to go home. And they did. And so it was a blunder. They should have, But anyway, what happens is that Madison says, all right, I didn't really believe that we need these, what they call parchment barriers. Republics don't really need bills of rights. Monarchies need bill of rights to protect them from uh, arbitrary power for the monarch. Republic shouldn't. Plus, once we start listing the rights, we might forget some, right? And most of the states already have these things. So we don't really need this. What persuades them? There's a movement called the Second Convention Movement from all the states that have had recommended amendments. It's led by Patrick Henry in Virginia and George Clinton in New York. They say, look, these are things we think should be in any real document that we that represents all of us and therefore we think we need to have a second convention. A second convention is a recipe to undo everything. I got to stop this second convention movement. The way to stop it is to show the people in the different states that are concerned, we're listening to you. Here, you made these recommendations, we're going to take them. Okay. If you try to figure this out, and nobody's done this recently. I mean, some 19th century historians say it, but, "But like, well, what were the recommended amendments? You got to go figure out what they were. There's like 227 of them. There's a lot of repeats, though. And if you come down, there's about 120 total amendments. When Madison's writing the Bill of Rights, He is not looking up at the heavens and thinking, what is the platonic truths I'm about to discover? He's looking at these amendments and saying, which of these do I want to keep alive? There's every state that made amendments made a recommendation along the following lines, tax contributions from states shall be voluntary rather than mandatory. (laughs) Deep six that one, baby. We're not going to let that one come up, okay? There's one that he puts in that was, his, that was not recommended by anybody in the ratifying conventions, but that he liked. The federal government has an executive veto over all state laws. He liked that. He put it in. The Senate took it out again. Okay. Now here's one that's controversial today and I mention it for that very reason, Second Amendment. When I run into people who tell me they got Second Amendment rights, I say, no you don't, you got Scalia rights. You don't have Second Amendment rights because that's not what the Second Amendment said. That's not what Madison intended. That's not what the House approved. That's not what the Senate approved. That's not what a single state that ratified approved in in that particular moment. And if you're making a case on the basis of original intent, whoa, this is the capital occasion for a violation of that principle. This is what he wrote. This is what Madison wrote. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed a well-regulated militia being the best security of a free country, but no person religi- no no person bearing religious scruples of with religious scruples of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. He is responding to a request from six states worried about the creation of a standing army. Worried that national defense will be in the hand of a federal professional army because there's stuff being talked about by that, by by the various, by Washington himself, as a matter of fact. And so that's what he's responding to the threat of a standing army. Who made any recommendations about the right to bear arms? Nobody. Not a single person. Why? They didn't think it was threatened. It had never been threatened. It's not about your right to bear arms. It's about your obligation to serve. That's what it's all about. And go back and read the transcript. Read Madison's letters. Read the debate in the House. Read the debate in the Senate. Read the debate in each of the state ratifying conventions. Then read D.C. versus Heller. It doesn't mention any of that, nothing. Here's a document purported to be about original intent as a poster child for the originalist judicial philosophy and it has nothing to do with the, with the original intent of Madison and all those people that voted for this amendment. If you believe in the right to bear arms, you can hold on to that beef. But I believe I got a right not to get shot. And I'm holding on to that belief too. Okay? And let's, let's go forward and try to balance those two things out, okay? And don't come to me with all this crap about your Second Amendment rights, because you don't have any, unless you serve in the National Guard, and it's not the same thing. The Second Amendment is an anachronism now. It doesn't really mean anything. And so I've actually coined a new phrase, and I'm going to leave you with this, and leave you with hopefully some questions. Um, you know, we have talked about original sin, and slavery and racism are like the original sin. I've come up with this new friend. the originalist sin. We're gonna hear a lot about this because there are gonna be a lot of people appointed to the Supreme Court over the next five years. And you're gonna hear them come up and tell you what Robert said. You know, I don't call balls and strikes. I mean, I, don't, I just call balls and strikes. I don't decide on the strike zone, right? And I was saying this at dinner. By the way, Mr. Roberts, there was no such thing as baseball in 1789. (laughs) Um, uh, What they're doing is cherry-picking the past for their own particular political convictions. In the same way that the Warren Court cherry-picked the past for Brown versus Board of Education. In the same way as the uh, other court cherry-picked it for Roe v. Wade. By the way, there's nothing about privacy in the Constitution, the right of privacy. It's a political agenda, but it's the right's political, the right-wing's political agenda, and they have the majority. Um, The whole doctrine that we should look back on the Constitution as some sort of depository of eternal wisdom that can be divined now is a preposterous idea. Here's the man, Jefferson, who actually doesn't believe in the Constitution himself. He says, some men look at constitutions with sanctimonious reverence and deem them like the Ark of the Covenant, too sacred to be touched. They ascribe to the preceding age, my age, a wisdom more than human and suppose what they did to be beyond amendment. I knew that age well. I belonged to it and labored with it. It deserved well of its country. But I also know that laws and institutions must go hand-in-hand with the progress of the human mind. As that becomes more developed, more enlightened, as new discoveries are made, new truths discovered, institutions must advance also and keep pace with the times. We might as well require a man to wear still the coat which fitted him as a boy, as civilized society, to remain ever under the regime of their barbarous ancestors. Jefferson spoke for all the most prominent members, for all of them, of the revolutionary generation, in urging priority, posterity, excuse us, in urging posterity not to regard their political prescriptions as holy writ. The one intention they all have is not to pay any attention. It is richly ironic that one of the few original intentions they all shared was opposition to any judicial doctrine of original intent. To be sure, they all wished to be remembered, but that they did not want to be embalmed. (laughs) Thank you very much, and I'll take some questions. There are microphones down here. If anybody, this is a pretty big audience, and if you're sitting in the middle of this, you've got to be pretty brave. It's like somebody that's getting an Academy Award from the back row, you know. And the, um, but I'm more than willing to try to take some questions, and as an old teacher, would most like to have somebody ask me some. If you got any and you don't need the mic, I'll repeat it from out front. Good, here comes somebody. He's the head of the honors program at the university, so this has better be good. (laughs) No pressure there, thank you. Thank you for a wonderful talk. Um, We're all aware that there are fundamental elements that were around at the time, of the origins of our country, that we still grapple with today. Among them, the question of slavery and uh, large versus small states. In your book, you speak to Washington's concept of unity emerging, in part, from his experience with the Continental Army. How hmm. fair would it be to say that there's a scarlet thread throughout American history that also links American identity with the military
0: from that time forward till today?
1: That last thing, not quite. I mean, Eisenhower fits that, but, and Grant uh, do. But um, that's a, it's a two-part question, I guess. I mean, I'm, the, help me with this. But that, first of all, um, to what extent does Washington's early career... Shape his later career, his early career. You're, I presume, referring to his time during the French and Indian War as a soldier. Yeah, I've written a biography of him, so I've thought about this, and it's not off the top. As I mentioned, I think to you at dinner, I say, Adams went to Harvard, Jefferson went to Williams Mary, Washington went to war. Um, he, his education was of a more fundamental, realistic kind, and. He became a realist because he knew. I mean, guys next to him were having themselves disemboweled. Um, at the Battle of the Monongahela, he had three horses shot up out from under him. His entire command was wiped out. He lost his hat, had four bullet holes in his coat. He was never touched. Um, he, you know, it's the scene in like uh, Apocalypse Now, you know, where the, you know, the, the, company commander, doesn't believe he can be killed. You know, the mortar rounds are breaking all around him. Um, But it's also more than just that sense. And during the war, during the American Revolution, he does this. He purposely puts himself at risk many times, like on the top of a parapet at Yorktown. And, you know, the shells are going off around him. His staff is saying, come for God. He said, the men must see me here. The men must see me here. But that form of honor heroism isn't the most important thing. He's a realist, he, he, um, and he's immune to all utopian schemes. This makes him very anti-Jefferson. Um, he believes that nations ab- 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 obey their self-interest but not their ideals. Um, and all treaties are temporary. As long as your interest is there, then when it stops, it stops. He's tough. He's a real toughie. Um, and what he would say to us now I mean, the prescription that he makes in the farewell address is essentially isolationism, which holds true for over a century. And it's anachronistic now. We can no longer be an isolationist power. Um, but I think that we, you know, one of the things that I'm speaking from my own convictions here, and having thought about this in in, in terms of um, Washington's life. When the Cold War ended, you know, we were very thoughtful at the end of World War II about how we were going to proceed. You got George Kennan, you got you got the containment theory. It's very it's impressively thought through. Nothing like that happened when the Soviet Empire collapsed in 1989-90. Like nothing, you know, we didn't. We didn't go through, well, what does this mean? Theoretically, it should have meant a fundamental reduction in the size of the military. The military didn't get reduced at all. There was a time talking about peace dividend. That never happened. But that, like, there is not any fundamental realistic strategic appraisal of American interest. I mean, what is our strategic interest in the Middle East? What? Per, per Israel? Yeah. Oil? Not anymore. I mean, uh, that's an interesting, worthy worthy of debate question. But until you have strategic options that give you, you know, clarity, well, there's some things that we should do and some things probably we shouldn't. We'll do everything, which is what we're doing now and is unsustainable. But that's not really answering your question. It's using your question to say something I wanted to say. I apologize. Um, Yes, sir. It sounds like uh, there's always been small groups of people pretty much doing what they want. At what point did it become uh, necessary to give it the cover of this is a democracy and what the people want? (laughs) Well, the interesting fact is that the term democracy doesn't get used as anything other than an epithet. Until the second decade of the 19th century. You know, you can, if sometimes you'll read like uh, histories of the 1790s when Jefferson's party comes in and say the Democratic Republican Party. That's not right. It does not call the Democratic, it's called the Republican Party. And it, it's not the basis for the current Republican Party, it's the basis for the current Democratic Party, which is really crazy. Um, but democracy is an epithet. And the Constitution is created by people who are not anti-democratic, but they're pre-democratic. They don't believe the people can be trusted. And this is rather relevant for our time right now. If you read Federalist I and Federalist 85 by, by Hamilton, what he says is republics, because they have a democratic base, are most vulnerable to demagogues. That's how the the republics will get brought down, by demagogues. (laughs) Um, And the Constitution is essentially a filtration process so that you filter popular opinion through layers of deliberation, each higher than the other and more refining, so that what comes out is more likely to be in the public interest. The public interest res publica is not often the same thing as what's popular. In fact, very seldom. The public interest is the long-term interest of the people which at any given moment the people don't usually understand. Guess what? It hasn't changed. (laughs) Um, And that's what the Constitution permitted. And that's in a pre-democratic era that no longer, I mean, it hasn't started talking about the wisdom of the common man. (laughs) I mean, you know, like, you know, like, that hasn't appeared yet, that's Jacksonian stuff. Um, So that they're created, the the Constitution and the founding occurs in this moment when it's open to talent in a way that Europe and England certainly isn't. I mean, Hamilton would have been nothing. Hamilton was literally a bastard, okay? Franklin would have remained a bookseller. Washington would have remained major in the British Army. Um, Adams would have been a country lawyer, nothing more. These people were propelled, but they really didn't believe in democratic values in the way that comes into existence in the 19th century. It's pre-democratic. And and I think that's the strength of the Constitution. Um, it's, It's a document, and I mean, I think, yeah, boy, I'm really getting too personal here. I think the Republican Party needs to go back to basics. I need to, they need to lose this election big time. The best thing for them is to go back to basics and give us a responsible party on the center right. And when they do that, go back to the very term "Republic." That's what they are. They're in the you know, and so build your build your party with that as a core idea. Theodore Roosevelt understood that. Abraham Lincoln understood that. I'm afraid Ronald Reagan never understood that, okay, um, but I'm talking too much about my own convictions here. Ask me a good funny question. Yes, sir. We got one more. When, then, then we got to, I think we got to sign books here. Do you believe that the founding fathers intended the Supreme Court to give themselves the authority that they did in Margaret versus Madison? No. Uh, The question was, to what extent did the framers of the Constitution, the 55 people who wrote it in summer of 87, believe in the principle of judicial review, namely that the Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter of the Constitution, which, by the way, has interesting implications if you believe in original intent, right? All you can do is recuse yourself. Um, um, But they thought that each this is a, they, i know this sounds crazy but they thought each branch of the government was sovereign each branch could interpret its own interest best by itself that and that the if you read the constitution on judicial power you tell me what the hell they're thinking <laughs> what they're thinking is uh Let's put together the last thing we want this thing called the Supreme Court to be is supreme. We don't want that. You'd say, I would say the same thing on executive power. It's like it's very vague. Washington establishes the power of the presidency in practice. It's not there in the Constitution in a clear way. but. Marbury versus Madison is the decision that that is usually cited as the beginning of the principle of judicial review. It's an 1802-1803 decision by James, by John Marshall. Um, the, but it's a weird decision. You don't want, I not right, want to know. It's weird because it it announces the right to interpret the Constitution in a way that um, that is that he never has to enforce. The real first, the first real decision. And uh, the judicial review principle is Dred Scott, 1857. That's a substantive decision, and it was the wrong decision. But it was based on uh, uh, the, the court's view of the original intent of the founders in terms of permitting slavery to exist and defining the black as a as a pro- as property rather than as a person. Sir, you get the last word. Actually, I'll get the last word, of course, but. Uh, <laughs> I'm silly. I'll am i just follow up on that exchange yeah. and ask you this. If you're right, and I'm pretty sure I agree with you, that the power of judicial review was not in the original Constitution, right. it was invented in Marbury it's, and expanded, uh, it certainly is recognized now and yes, seldom is. challenged. Is there, any, w- is, there, is there anywhere to go with that, or is it simply the idea that the, Const- that the Supreme Court is in charge of deciding what laws Congress can pass is there is is there ever any way for that to go back to what you think was the original intent? No, I don't think we can go back. I mean, I think, um, short of that, you know, you don't have an ultimate arbiter in a in a in a population this size, you need that. I mean, I think what they, the decision they specifically made in 2000 to give the election to Bush, hey, boy, that's really bad when this, it comes down to, you know, a five to four uh, decision in the Supreme Court. Um, I do think that what we are going through now is the realization as a people that the Supreme Court itself is a political body. It's not in super communication with the gods, okay i'm telling you, I know a lot about the founders. none of those people were gods. they were all imperfect and i i don't know too many Supreme Court justices, but none of those people have direct communication with the gods either, and that we want to believe that the, the you know when the Seven members of the court sit down. That there's this process of deliberation that is sophisticated and nonpartisan. That's not true, and in fact, it's never been true. It's just that the conservatives have the majority right now. Um, uh, there are certain co- you know cases in which certain judges behaved in a really remarkably bipartisan way. Hugo Black voted against you know who's a member of the Klan you know, uh, voted for civil rights. Um, But um, what's being exposed to us, and we don't like it. I understand why we don't like it. It's like I used to believe my father was omniscient too. And, um, but these people are just other people. They're not, they're they're political, and and the level of politicization, politicization that's going on now with regard to the court, It's unfortunate, but that's what it is, Um, and um, I mean, if Hillary wins, she's going to have several different appointments. I I have some reason to believe, uh, from sources that cannot be mentioned, that there are other judges ready to retire that you wouldn't think of as the ones ready to retire. Um, Anyway, um, but it's become, in a country that's highly partisan and, and controversies are really, really difficult, the importance of the court as the final adjudication process becomes even greater. Um, it really does. Um, therefore, let's get it back. Yes, sir? I sense uh, from your book that Hamilton and Clinton hated each other. Yes. Uh, now, now <laughs> wait a minute. This is not Hillary, okay? Oh, no. <laughs> This is another Clinton. This is George Clinton, governor of of New York and former uh, Revolutionary War hero. So tell us a funny story about these two guys and how they threatened to secede from each other and that business. Tell you, uh, that's putting real pressure on me here. Um, um, I can't come up with a real funny story now, but, Clinton was governor of New York, and he controlled New York. He was the boss of New York, and so there was the debate on ratification in New York. This isn't funny, but it's a good point to end on. Um, Jay and, and Hamilton were arguing for ratification in a situation where they knew they had no chance of winning, none whatsoever. And so the name of the game was to delay the actual vote until they heard from Virginia, which they presumed would be the ninth state. And at that point, all debate's irrelevant. You've got to go along. Turns out Virginia's not, New Hampshire beats them to the punch, okay? And unexplicably votes almost overwhelmingly for ratification, but Hamilton says, the most important thing I can do is have relay teams of horses set up between Richmond and Poughkeepsie. <laughs> More important than anything I said or wrote in the Federalist Papers is, if we can get the word from the Virginia Convention in Richmond fast up to here, which is being held in Poughkeepsie, New York, that's, that's, and that's what he did. Um, and actually rode one of the horses himself for the final round. He, he's an attractive guy. I'm jealous as hell of, uh, of Ron uh, um, Chernow because he's been so lucky in having a brilliant genius like uh, Miranda do, do Hamilton. And it is a genius work. Um, but it's introduced Americans to the 18th century in a way that is wonderful. It's just wonderful. Yeah, except at the end. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, like I, I'm an Adams guy more than a Hamilton guy, and Adams hated Hamilton towards the end. Um, But like towards the end, Hamilton is, um, he's, you know, he's you don't you don't want to turn power over to him. He's ready to invade Mexico, you know, and he's is in favor of the Alien and Sedition Acts. He's ready to take over Mexico and all Latin America. Crazy schemes. And uh, uh, he's, he's he, it's when his, when his um, younger son is killed in a duel, he really goes through some sort of emotional crisis. And um, he discovers God again, or, you know, the Bible. And um, he's different. He's different at that stage. But early on, like, he's... He's uh, he's a genius, and he's audacious, and he's a form of political leadership that we haven't seen in a hell of a long time. Um, it's probably almost impossible to get it now, but um, uh, he's dangerous. He's dangerous. He knows about demagogues because he could be one himself. <laughs> so could Burr. And that's the reason they hate each other. Um, but. Um, If you haven't seen it, it is going to travel, I think, and it's going to be on PBS, too. It's great. Um, Thank you for having me.